right, shalom and welcome to a very special live audience recording of Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Anzavin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hey, Dan. Oh my God, Miriam, look at all these people. I know. <laughs> this is different. Uh, we are thrilled to be with cookbook authors and culinarians, Marilyn and Sheila Brass. The longtime Cambridge residents have, can I say, 130 years of combined baking and cooking experience. Experience plus talent equals something special, so it's no surprise that the Brass sisters were recently named food heroes by the mayor of Cambridge for the various food contributions. They've authored three cookbooks, Baking with the Brass Sisters, Heirloom Cooking with the Brass Sisters, and Heirloom Baking with the Brass Sisters, which was a finalist for a James Beard Award. And now they're the stars of their own show on PBS, The Food Flirts. So we can think of no better guest for our first ever Jewish Boston Vibe of the Tribe podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Marilyn and Sheila. Now you can clap. So right now the world, it seems like a dark place. Just turn on the news. But when we flip the channel over to your show, The Food Flirts, it projects a, a fun and lighthearted vibe. It highlights the importance of diversity, using cross-cultural food mashups to bring people and cultures together. As you say on the show, food isn't as good if you don't share it with people. What role does cooking have in bridging divides between people? Well, first of all, I have to warn you about something. Um, we, Sheila and I, start and finish each other's sentences. So I might talk for a while, and then she will break in. She will talk for a short while, and then I will. <laughs> and, you know, people have described us. I will get to your answer, though. People, people have described us, described us as sort of an ecosystem, the two of us. And also, I, you know, I feel that there are times when I act as if I were the alpha sister. But Sheila is a big listener. And then she comes out with these comments. And, you know, she's really, she, she's really got it. She knows what she's doing. All right, you want to say something? <laughs> this is what happens. Marilyn will talk, and she's wonderful. You know, she is my sister, but she has the gift of gab. And I, you know, sort of sit by quietly and throw in a joke, little thing like that. She got, never gives me a dirty look. Never. never. She's never. very good that never. way. We're very, she very knows polite to each other. If she works that way, then I'll just go to the back and be quiet until no, the next no, no, time. No. Well, first of all, I have a picture in my... I'm going to answer the question. I have a picture. <laughs> you know, you know, She'll never answer all right, it. Think of us, think, think of us as, as sort of your surrogate boobies, or aunties, or even mothers if you're really old. <laughs> but, you know, if you, I, I, I visualize when you ask about cooking and how it brings us together, how we learn about other people's ethnicities, their cuisines, their cultures, this is the answer. Now, I have my hand on the table. Now, there's a chair there and there's a chair here. There's a chair there, chair there, table. When you think of people getting to know one another, think of a table. It doesn't have to be a big table, but it's a table where you can put two chairs. 
Once you have a table and two chairs, and even better yet, something nice to eat or drink on it, that gives you a chance to have a conversation. And one of the things we found when we were sort of uh, enveloping ourselves in different cultures and foods is that when people sit down to eat, they're pretty much the same. And you haven't lived until you've seen a Chinese chef eating a pastrami ramen kugel <laughs> with sake. And the thing is that, you know, there's a word, a word called, it's called, it's not called, it is, it's companion. And when you take that word apart linguistically, it's kum and pane with bread. And a companion is someone that you break bread with. Now I've got, and Sheila has, a whole bunch of bread stories, and maybe we'll you know, have a chance to tell some of them today. But cooking is very, very important. Baking is important. But as we like to say, there is nothing better than eating something that has been prepared for you by someone who loves you. And there's nothing better than baking or cooking something for someone you love. This was a, a thing that my mother always used to say, you know, that you have to share a meal and combine, you know, the forces. And it's just a wonderful feeling. You're not alone. You're there with someone who loves you. Yes. And um, you know, I, I hesitate, but I, I will tell a very brief story, if I may. You may. You may. Okay. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm Jewish. <laughs> She's Jewish, too. She's my sister. I Welcome. think I'm more Jewish than you are. I'm not going to argue with you about that. But, but the thing is, when you're Jewish, you're Jewish. And we were brought up with a moral legacy. And part of that moral legacy was to help people if they need help. And we get up, Sheila and I, every morning, and we live together and we work together. We didn't always. Yeah, but we always got along. But anyway, we get up in the morning and we say to ourselves and to each other, how can we do something good for someone today? And that was the way our parents brought us up. And that is part of the Jewish ethos. And where I have to say this. One of the reasons Sheila and I are so close is because we brought each other up. Our mother will have been gone 56 years in April. I was 20. Sheila was 25. Our father has been gone 41. So Sheila was 39, I was 34. So the question is, even though we haven't had our parents for so long, and we, we like to say we brought each other up, we were fortunate to have a moral legacy. And the moral legacy included a lot of the edicts of Judaism. And one of them is, that you always feed someone who is hungry. And the little brief story is, I was a young girl, 
And in those days, people came to your front door with a little satchel, and they would sell notions, you know, a little, a spool of thread, a packet of needles, um, something like that. Uh, not, not an expensive item, but that's how they lived. And they would come nicely dressed, and they would say, um, would you like to buy this or this? Or do you need this? Well, one day I went into the kitchen, and there was this little lady, and to me she was old, but she was probably in her 60s or 70s. And she had a little hat on and a nice little dress, and she had her satchel, and she was eating dinner. And I said to my mother, I said, Mama, who is that? And she said she came to the door, and she was trying to sell notions, and she said she reminded me of your grandmother, her mother. And she said, so I asked her to have dinner. And she fed her. And that was how we were brought up. So food was something that really helped us connect with people. It helped us connect with our relatives, Uncle Julie and Aunt Ida. Uncle Julie was the one who, you know, he didn't know what the word dessert buffet was. He just, you know, pulled up a chair to the buffet table. He did. You know, a piece of cake, a piece of pie, a couple of cookies, and a little fruit salad because it was healthy. But anyway, it, and, and the brass side of the family, you know, too. So Aunt Sadie would come to my graduation party from Northeastern, and she'd say, you know, I, I can't eat a thing. You know, I don't know if you'll, there's nothing I can eat, but would you, I'll try some of that. Maybe a little more. You know, a little more here, a little more there, and you know, I'm struggling to you know, handle. But you know, that's family, and that's, you know, the brass side of the family sat in the living room, and the cats of side of the family, my mother's family, sat in the kitchen. And never the twain shall meet. <laughs> but, you know, this is what families are. And, you know, the Russians have a very nice saying. It's funny. They say, you know, families are a little bit like fudge, sweet but with a few nuts. <laughs> and, and the thing is that, once again, it's food that brings us together. And doing the series was a privilege, but it wa was a lot of hard work because, you know, most of, you know, the shows that have series have, you know, like 50 to 100 people doing a show. We had six, which meant that they took over the house. We rent a house. It's a ranch house. And I'll tell you, uh, we all took turns cleaning the bathroom. And... <laughs> Uh, the executive producer cleaned off the walk in Sheila's car, and he's from L.A., so he, he didn't know from blizzards. <laughs> and we shot in the middle of a blizzard, two blizzards. <coughs> and it was wonderful because family has always been important to us, and it was, you know, the crew was like a family to us. And the chefs were wonderful. They were like family to us. And... It was just such a rewarding experience to go into another culture by going into another, you know, kitchen, something that we had never experienced, like the dosa, you know, the Indian dosa. Now, do you have another question? Oh, we've got a bunch. 
You've got um, tons. You know, because I, you know, I can talk for an hour and a half and so You can Sheila. say that again. <laughs> but I can also talk for a minute and a half. So I'm timing. Somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. So, you know. Well, a minute and a half on television is a long time. So, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about how you got started in this career and how you ended up publishing your first cookbook, Heirloom Baking. I lost my job. I was 60 years old. I was working for WGBH, and I was working for the How Tools. And one of the programs, this old house, uh, was sold to Time Warner. And they moved to a town where there was no public transportation, and I don't drive. So I decided I wanted to stay at GBH. And then um, we have a saying, when a brass looks for work, there's always a recession. <laughs> and, and, and as it happened, there were no openings at GBH. So I said to Sheila, I said, I'm 60 years old. If I don't leave now and write a cookbook, I'm never going to do it. So I, you know, I, I got my courage, you know, up there. And I left. And I ended up writing Heirloom Baking with the Brass Sisters. And as it turned out, um, Heirloom Baking was nominated for James Beard Award. And then uh, Heirloom Baking and Heirloom Cooking were both chosen as one of the 25 best cookbooks of the year by Food and Wine. And that was wonderful. <laughs> so here I am. I'm in my 60s. And they decide they're going to send us on uh, a book tour. We've done three book tours. And I, I can't even begin to describe what it's like, except that you know, when you go to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia, they will drop you at the wrong hotel at <laughs> midnight. And then you will have to bribe one of the bell people to take your bags to the hotel that you should have gone to down the street. And then you get there, and there's no food except for you know, machines. And you know, you're just going and going and going. And then you, when you get to Minneapolis, you're in and out, and you don't, no one ever sleeps in Minneapolis. <laughs> so I mean, it's, that's how it started. And then um, we ended up um, doing Baking with the Brass Sisters. And we're working on a new book. And the book is, the working title is, I can see you're looking and you're waving. Uh, <laughs> And you also have little dimples. I noticed that. <laughs> um, milk and Honey, Stories from a Jewish American Life. And so that's what we're going to be doing this winter. We're going to be doing our taxes, and we're going to be working <laughs> on a proposal for um, a book about our lives, growing up Jewish, and also the experiences we've had you know, with the books. Now. For those of you who have the book, you know, that you just got, you know, you won, I think you can safely say it's a collector's item because it is out of print. And I think most of our books are out of print right now, and it just happened. I just found out. So we're going to have to decide what we want to do about that. And there is a book called From Grandma's Kitchen, and that's a compilation 
of the first two books, Heirloom Baking and Heirloom Cooking. But it has been such a ride doing the cookbooks. We, um, I've been testing, I have, I've tested recipes, four recipes a day and the, in 90 degree weather and then the air conditioner has broken. We did um, two cookbooks in a galley kitchen without a dishwasher. One time I fell in the kitchen when I was doing a, a, a coffee cake and I put it in the uh, refrigerator, the, the batter, and I went to the doctor, Sheila took me and my knee blew up like a cantaloupe. And then I, he, he said, the doctor said, nothing's broken, but keep it up. So the next day I was feeling better and I went to the refrigerator and I found, you know, the batter and I put it in the oven. I put it, yeah, I put it in the pan. All right, you're, I'm gonna, and, and it came out wonderful. So then I added to the recipe, batter can be refrigerated overnight. <laughs> So anyway, um, that's how we started. And Sheila was wonderful. She would get up in the morning and she would um, put out all the utensils and the ingredients. And then at lunchtime, I would have a couple of recipes all done, like you know, baked Indian pudding or balinces. And she would take it into channel two and everyone would try it and they'd you know, give us feedback. In fact, I wrote most of baking, uh, uh, cooking with the Brass Sisters, Alum Cooking, um, in the telephone room at WGBH because they, they had a telephone room where employees could go and have private conversations. So nobody used it that much. So I used to sneak in with my laptop and that's where I wrote most of, you know, Alum Cooking with the Brass Sisters. They're gonna put a star up on the window. If they wanted, there was no window. I love the way you always come in with the laugh line. Oh, I love she's, it. I love you know, I'm gonna give her a chance to talk more. Um, so you talked a little bit about your Jewish heritage and we love that on the show, you're always saying things like, Google it instead of Google it. Um, and you've talked about, you know, your Romanian Jewish heritage. How has being Jewish shaped your lives and influenced the show? Well, part of it, <laughs> all right, you want to say, it's yours, I'm handing Feel it over. Lunging in for that. All right, all right, okay. <clears throat> speak up. I will speak up. Um, you know, the f home that we lived in and the parents we had did so much to help us. Um, they were not easy going. I mean, they were easy going, but you know, you had to watch your step especially with my mother. But we tried our best and we had such a wonderful family together that it just made everything worthwhile. All the scraped knees and the, you know, broken, I've had a broken ankle and you know, you get into trouble, but you knew your family was there. Yiddish was spoken, not the whole time, but a good amount. And this was part of our life. And we took, you know, we took advantage of it, even though we didn't know we were taking advantage of it. And well, it you just know why they spoke Yiddish. 
They didn't want us to know. But they we, were talking we about immediately <laughs> learned Yiddish. Then we I learned think Yiddish. I was three years old and I learned Yiddish. Yeah. But um, we had wonderful parents, and I think that makes a big difference when you're growing up. Family was everything. You mentioned your mom, yeah. uh, Dorothy, when we yeah. were talking before we started, as your culinary mentor. Yes. And you know, I think she had that quote, or you guys she, yeah. know that. She I didn't know. know how There's to nothing that tastes as good yeah. as something that's cooked by someone who loves us. And I'm wondering how your mother mentored you, in addition to mothering you, but mentored yeah. you into this career that you eventually ended up with. Well, she was our person to go to. We knew, you know, that if we had a question, Mama, what should I do with this? Mama, what should I do with that? Oh, I guess you're right. You know, she was always right, whether she was or wasn't. But we learned she was a very loving but tough person. And, yeah, you, you can say okay. a word. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, one of the things she used to say was, well, first of all, I would say to her, you know, Mama, everybody's mother brags about, you know, the kids. You never brag about us. She said, if something good happens, people will come to me and tell me about it. And as I've grown older, I see what she means. And I'm glad she did that. The other thing she used to say is, what are you going to do if I'm not around? And we lost her when I was 20, as I said, and Sheila was 25. And she wasn't around. And we just had to grow up. But I think, you know, Sheila is absolutely right. We would, you know, we went to our parents. They were approachable. And one of the things that I really love about them is that I always wanted to be a writer, and Sheila wanted to be an artist and a fashion designer. And she did. She went to New York at the age of 21, and for 10 years in New York and Boston, she was a fashion designer. And an, enough of her clothes would have filled, that were sold, would have filled Fenway Park for a whole season. That's over 10 years. And then I became a writer. And my parents, our parents, never said to us, you know, you can't be a writer, you can't be a dress designer or an artist because you'll never make any money and blah, blah, blah. They always said, do what you feel you want to do. Do what you're good at. Try it. But the other thing was that our mother was... She really was self-taught when it came to cooking. She couldn't baking. cook anything but, what did she cook? That caught, oh, caught my father's eye. Oh, the chocolate uh, velvet cake. And then she um, also made brownies and chocolate chip cookies before she was married. But from that point on, she had to learn how to cook. And the reason I'm bringing this up is she learned how to bake from this book. This book... It's all about home baking, and this was this edition is October 1941. It was published a month before I was born, and Sheila collects copies of. We must have had 60 copies, and now what we're doing is we're giving away. Whenever we do an event, we're giving away a copy, and we have my mother's copy, which has all of her recipes handwritten, 
in, <laughs> in the uh, front and back pages. So it's in the safe deposit. It's in the box. safe deposit box. And you know what? The only people that really value it are us because it was our mother. Yeah. But we thought it was important enough. But I think enough. the people who who read our books. Oh yeah. Because we put her Balintz recipe in. Oh yeah. Her apricot strudel. But what I wanted to say in answer to your question, when we could reach just about reach the kitchen table, my mother would have us come over to her, and we had our own little rolling pins, our own little pie tins, our own little loaf pans. If she were making holly, she'd give us some of the dough, and we would make a little miniature holly. We'd it, learn how to you know, braid it. it. And we used to make jam tarts that look like turnovers, you know, when you, you take the tines of a fork and you, you put jam in it. And, you know, we made cookies, we made everything, and that's how we learned how to cook and bake. And one of the great things is that during the summer, we lived in a three-decker, which we owned, and our cousins and our aunts and uncles would come for the summer. And so my mother, you know, the second floor was our kitchen, and it was Kitchen Central, and that's where all the kids used to come and all our friends. And, you know, they knew that no matter what time of the day or it was or afternoon, they could get a piece of chocolate velvet cake and a glass of milk or a piece of pineapple pie or fresh apple pie or um, sugar cookies. And, you know, we just, it was wonderful, or moon cookies. Um, but on Friday, she would make chopped liver, chopped herring, she would make matzo balls. She would make, of course, chicken and chicken soup. But she'd also make holly, which is, as you know, a yeast bread and had a rise. So in the middle of the rising, she would go to our piano, the upright piano, and gather all the kids, you know, the cousins and our friends and her good friend, Rose Levy, and we'd all stand around the piano and she would play popular songs. And she'd say, does anyone have a request? And I'd request something or someone else would. And she'd say, could you hum a little of it? And then she would play it. And sometimes we'd dance a little, you know, and we'd sing a, you know, but then she'd say, it's time to put the holly in the oven. But forever and ever, food and music will be entwined for us, just the way the, um, the pieces of dough are entwined for our holly. And those are memories that we treasure. And during the 1950s, another thing occurred. There was a lot going on. There were the McCarthy hearings, and there was the Red Scare, and things were very uncertain. We had come out of a terrible Holocaust, and they, you know, they, they became part of a movement, which was the Brotherhood Movement. And we had one Brotherhood Council in Winthrop. And my mother and father joined. And it was very, very important because they would take us to the meetings and the gatherings and the events. And people actually spoke to each other. And it was the beginning of the 60s. It was the 50s, but we were morphing into the 60s where there was a lot of change and a lot of push for civil rights and equality. 
And, you know, my mother was less than five feet tall. My father was uh, five foot three and a half. And, you the know. The giant of the family. They were, <laughs> they were giants to us because they lived their lives as giants morally. And I think that's very important, but we just keep coming back to food. And the thing is, um, someone, many people have asked us, are you gonna shoot more episodes? Well, we'd love to. But right now, we're going to be going into the search for funding. So if anybody knows anyone who wants to fund us, that would be great. Um, but going into the funding mode means that you go to these one hour or two hour meetings and you talk and talk and talk and you, you know, tell the story of what you want to do. And I, I have to tell you one other thing about flirting. We are very, very careful. Now, I must say, that Sheila is the flirt in the family. You wouldn't believe it to and look at I me. I don't know if you've... you've I, I was going to ask. Okay, you, then you ask it again, and I will, I'll answer you again. You know, this is your day, Dan. Thank you so much. No, I'm, I'm here for you. I, I was going to ask who the bigger flirt was, but I guess we... Uh, might it's have our me. answer. It's I. Yeah. Well, actually, I had a question for she. Good. <laughs> um, so you are sometimes the quieter one on the show, but when you do talk, you come out with these funny, snarky one-liners, um, like when Marilyn in one episode, you know, you say to her that that you look like the Terminator in sunglasses, and you go, "That's what I'm going for." <laughs> uh, so some of us with siblings know there can be some bickering involved. We've noticed on the show that occasionally you've got some minor spats over a previous about Bill, about Bill, <laughs> previous boyfriend named Bill. Um, so I, I kind of want to know how do you guys get along, both as sisters and business partners? Is there a bit of a rivalry, or no, never, not so much? No, yeah, but that's fact, what makes it so easy. Yeah. Well, what happened happens is, um, you know, someone will say something nice about Sheila, and they'll say, I hope you don't mind that, you know, I said something nice about Sheila. I said, when you compliment my sister, you compliment me. And the thing is that um, we pool our money, and thank God she always tells me to buy, a, buy something. You know, she's... We're both good that way. We, we like to save money, but we like to, you know, spend it when, the, when you have to. When you run a business, you spend money, as everyone knows. But I want to clear something up because you're all young and, you know, I don't want you to be disillusioned. Um, we each had a boyfriend named Bill. It wasn't the same. I was not <laughs> implying that it was. No, 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 but I, wa I want to clear that up. Um, we each had a boyfriend named Bill, and I didn't like her Bill, and she didn't like my Bill. <laughs> and you know what? We were both right. They were not the ones for us. But every once in a while, we'll you know, mention something about Bill, and um, that's why we mention it on the program. Now, flirting. Um, I think the biggest flirtation scene was in the Indian restaurant with Chef Das. I don't know how many of you have seen that one, where we made dosa. He was wonderful. He 
was so natural. Now, I have to tell you, the shows are not scripted. No, not at all. Bruce, our executive producer, never knows what's going to come out of our mouths. And I'll tell you, that guy was unbelievable. He not only, f he said, the first thing he said, no flirting in my kitchen. And Sheila said, well, I understand, you know, there's a lot of hot oil and other, and then, um, <laughs> and, and then um, he said, and, you know, as the show went on, he said, you know, he said, my wife is in India. Okay. And then, and then um, he said to Sheila, he said, um, I will be happy to give you private lessons at my home. Call me after 8 o'clock. Come over after 8 o'clock. <laughs> and I mean, you know, he was... It was a joke. It was I mean, a joke. he was joking. And Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> I would have killed her if she... No, I take it back. I take it back. I would never kill her or anyone. But, uh, you know, he, he was fine. He but I, I want to touch on something because, you know, we are all aware of the Me Too movement. Now, you all think that's something new, but it isn't. It's been going around where we respect each other and we respect the limits, our personal spaces. And I want to tell you something in all seriousness. Um, when we were doing this, sure, we were flirting, but we respected everyone's personal space. And there was one scene where we, um, Chef Tyler at Mamala's, and you know, Sheila tried to you know, test his muscle, his big guns. And before we did that, we said, would it be okay if we did it? Because what we do is we ask permission before we touch someone, before we you know, hug someone, because you never know what their personal history, their secret personal history has been. And we have to respect that, what we know and what we don't know. And oftentimes, you know, when they, people hear the word flirting, they think, you know, it's just, you know, wildness, but it wasn't. The other thing is we feel that you have to be age appropriate in some ways that it's a little ridiculous if some 20-year-old guy is there and we're flirting, but we're not really flirting. We're flirting with the concept of learning, learning about his ethnicity or his method of cooking. And that's what has helped us so much with social media because it just exploded. We've heard from people from Africa. We've heard from people from China, from Asia, from Europe from Canada, from all over the United States. We've heard from Appalachia. We've heard from people from Montana. We've heard from Jewish people. We've heard from non-Jewish people. We've heard from, you know, just about every ethnicity, and they all say, we love your show. And that's so gratifying. But, you know, it's just very important that we embrace civility at this time in our lives. I think it was Santana who said, Santayana who said, you know, people who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And Jewish culture has shown us and Jewish history that there are some, have been some very bad things going on. And it's up to us 
to decide what direction we want to go in. And if eating with someone, sitting down with someone you don't know, and eating something that you never had before is going to help, then you do it. And food is what connects us. Amen. So we want to open up to the audience uh, for any questions that you might have. If you have a question, raise your hand, and Kali or Ashley is going to come around oh. and bring you the mic. Thank you guys so much. Um, this has been such a fun break in the afternoon. Um, so a little bit of a switch in the topic, but can you share something that has been truly outrageous on the show, either something that you've kept in the show or even something that you had to take out of the show because it was so outrageous and so funny or so ludicrous or anything like that? Well, the show is unscripted, first of all. So no one knows what we're going to be saying. I think one, one of the most outrageous things was Chef Das. And there's a scene where Sheila and Chef Das in our living room are, are dancing. There was nothing really, um, you know, outrageous or, you know, offensive that we had to cut. But some of the things were really funny because I said when they, they brought in some salsa teachers, and I said, you know, it's just geriatric salsa or something. <laughs> and I said, I've got moves and I can shimmy. And, you know, I was always a shy kid and I was a little self-conscious because, you know, most of my life I've been heavy. I've been thin twice and I've had a wonderful time. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I, for some reason, something's happened. And I have just gotten to the point where I'm willing to kind of use my body and be a little ridiculous. And then I find that people laugh with me. And that's a real boon. But, you know, we, we really, the, the other thing that was a little bit unusual was when we did the Provincetown show, there is a very large gay population in Provincetown. But there's also a Jamaican populace there. And, you know, there are many ethnic groups. And we ended up, um, having a drag queen come to a party. I don't know if you've seen that show, but the guy, his name is, I think was it, it was Dan, I think, and he's a chef. And he had made us, he had made us cranberry scones, a cranberry scone, and a strawberry scones, and because we, we visited a spa. And then this, we knew that he was coming, someone was coming. And by the time he got through, he was wearing wedges, you know, the shoes. And he's very tall, he was over seven feet tall. And, you know, I look at it as, you know, the guy is an actor, he's a performer. And he must have had some kind of armature, you know, to build himself up. And Later, we found out that they gave him 20 minutes' notice. He had to have the nails done, the makeup done, the wig, everything underneath. And he came, and he had a ring that said, in rhinestone, sexy. <laughs> and I fell in love with that. Yeah. <laughs> and he is a really wonderful guy. And he's got a great sense of humor, and he was very gracious to us. 
And in the back of my mind, I was a little concerned about how people would accept it. But everyone has accepted it. And, you know, I think they realize that it's a, it's a civilized show and it's a diverse show. And we wanted, you know, to celebrate everybody. I just noticed the height difference. I didn't even, I was just like. He, he was seven was, feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> but if you looked at him without all of the makeup and, and the, and yeah, like he that. just, you know, you know, without the costume, he just looks like a tall guy. Other questions? Hi, thank you both so much for being here. Um, my question is for each of you, what is your favorite thing to cook for yourselves when you're at home? Hmm. Brown That's sugar tough. brownies. Yes, brown sugar brownies. Um, my latest favorite is Marilyn is making an omelet with nothing in it, and it's absolutely It's delicious. just a nice, plain omelet. Light. Light. omelet. And that, that, that takes a, a little bit of practice. But we, you know, we like ethnic food, and um, we actually cook and bake differently. Sheila is very, very precise, and I try to be precise when it comes to baking. But I'm the one who loves to do entrees. And I just you know, throw a lot of things in. But one of the things is that we've trained ourselves when we um, do something new that the laptop's on the dining room table, so we, in the kitchen, it's an open kitchen, so we go immediately to the laptop and write down our notes. Because if you don't, you're, not, you're gonna forget something. You won't remember everything. Jeff, did you have a question? So how do you come up with your unique mashups, like the pastrami, ramen, kugel? Well, also, have you had any mashups that have flopped? No. Yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. No. <laughs> no. I'll tell you why. Because um, Denise Whitey is our culinary, she's our supervising and culinary producer. And she has a fabulous background in the culinary field. She's a chef. And Bruce, our executive producer, spent 14 years at the Food and Food Network Cooking Channel as, I think he was the vice president for programming and development. So they've tasted everything and they've made everything. And we too have done, you know, a lot of baking and cooking and creating recipes. So the, the four of us get together and we start to talk. And we want to do something that's a little bit outrageous, and yet something that's edible and that tastes good and that looks good. And so we came up with the idea of the kugel. And the kugel, you know, it was like a potato kugel with, a, with luxion, you know, with the noodles. And we actually made the noodles, the ramen noodles, in our own kitchen. And um, the pastrami was from Mamala's and we learned how to cure it. And Bruce came up with the idea of um, doing a lattice work. And we found that it tasted like bacon. It was really remarkably um, good. And then the ramen broth we made was really, really good. And I was very pleased. And we kind of fooled around with the savory rugula. And you know, I, we tried it 
you know, a couple of times. We also came up with two different recipes for the baklava milk tart, the frozen one. And we've got two different, um, one of them, the crust is made from phyllo dough with the ground um, pistachios and the honey and the cinnamon. And the other one is actually a dough but has the cinnamon and the nuts in it. So we, you know, we, and we tasted them and we decided, and um, I spent all of, not last summer, but the summer before, actually writing out the recipes for PBS because all we had were notes. But it, it's a joint effort. And it's a lot of hard work, but it's worth it. And it's edible. It's not something that's really strange. You don't have to throw it out. <laughs> yeah. All right, I think we have time for one more question. Hi, over oh. here. Hi. Uh, thank you again for being here. Um, for those of the, us that have had a flop or two or 10 <laughs> while baking, what is your number one secret to success in the kitchen? I can think of one. Well, you could, but I was gonna say, that <laughs> I'll, I'll give you time. But the thing is, everyone, anyone can have a flop. I mean, I've had flops. I, they're edible and they're delicious, but they're not really what I <laughs> it was planning on. Um, and you should never feel bad if you have a flop because you learn from that, and that's important too. We test our recipes up to 10 times each, anywhere from six to 10 times, and we had enormous popovers. Oh, that took, I don't, can't remember how many. 10 times. 10 times. And then they were enormous, but. Um, but they were like that, and they were delicious. Yeah, one of the things I would say, I'm gonna be really, you know, I'm gonna focus on this. The first thing I would suggest is that you read through a recipe at least twice. The second thing is, um, there's something called, which you probably know about, a mise en place, which is laying out all your ingredients and all your utensils, excuse me, utensils. And every chef we visited did the same thing. There was a mise en place. If you have your utensils and you have your ingredients and you, you know, can measure everything and check, check it off if you have to. I do. And that's, that's a step in the right direction. The next thing that's very important, and this may make you laugh, but it's very important, remember to put on the oven. <laughs> because so many times we get so wrapped up in baking something or cooking something that we forget to put on the oven and then it just sits there until the oven warms up. The other thing is um, clean up, clean up after yourself because there's nothing more depressing than seeing a bunch of dirty dishes after you've spent you know, this time cooking and baking. And give the, uh, if you're baking or anything, give the dish time to cool before you take it out of the pan. And then you know, do a little research on food safety about what, how to handle different foods and when to leave them out, when, when to refrigerate them, how long to wait before you refrigerate them. And you know, be savvy about the containers that you use. Should it be a covered container? 
Should it be um, a non-reactive part that you use if, you, if you're using certain ingredients? But I think, you know, baking and cooking can be as simple as walking through a kitchen door for some people. And for other people, you know, they just have to go step by step. But it doesn't matter as long as it works. It's and true. Eat it. And you know what? I'm going to tell you something else. Whipped cream is your best friend. <laughs> I'm Be sorry. Hot fudge. Well, <laughs> well, I wouldn't put hot fudge on a pot roast. No, neither would I. I wouldn't put I. whipped cream either. But um, <laughs> it certainly wouldn't be kosher. But um, seriously, whipped cream, you know, if, if the cake or the pie isn't completely even, no one has to know. Just take some whipped cream and, you know, just the little rosettes around. And you know what? This is really heresy. Use a bought pie crust if you don't have time to make your own. And, you know, we have nothing against Cool Whip and we have nothing against uh, Minute Rice. You know, if people want if, invite us over and they use those products, that's fine. <laughs> now, I was going to say this, that we're giving away a copy of this. So I will put it in your capable hands to decide how that goes to someone. And you can find a picture of that, you know, on the web, because I know you're listening to a podcast. And it's a yellow, black, and white plaid book. And it's called All About Home Baking. So I want to give, let's all give a huge round of applause. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to clap for you. From us to you. And for our listeners, to make sure you don't miss an episode of Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and follow at Jewish Boston on social media. Thank you all for being a great audience. Thank you for coming.